Welcome to the audio podcast of the weekly sermon of the First Presbyterian Church of Brooklyn. We continue our multi-access worship both online and in our recently renovated sanctuary. During the summer months from July 4th weekend through Labor Day weekend, our worship will be live Sunday morning at 10 a.m. We are live on firstchurchbrooklyn.org as well as the church Facebook page at facebook.com slash firstchurchbrooklyn. All one word, no spaces. Now, this week's message. Amen. Thank you for that reading, Barbara. I actually wanted notes for this sermon, and I wrote some down, and I had an outline for how the sermon was going to take shape, but I can't print them. So none of notes. <laughs> so we'll see if I can actually get the point across this morning. One of the things that I was going to do was I was going to have Barbara, whoever was reading this morning, read this text but then another one like it, and then another one, and then another one, and do page after page after page after page until it got absurd, right? To the point where you're like, okay, like we get the point. We get that justice is such a crucial, not peripheral part of our faith, but but the core of it, that we see it over and over and over again. And to the point of, of absurdity, so it just gets in our bones that this ought to be a central piece of our practice. So I want to talk about justice this morning and the church's obligation to practice justice. And I want to do it in this framework of Black August. Now that we're in August, Black August is a commemorative month. It's not a heritage month, but kind of takes that shape. But it developed out of the California prison systems by black radicals in 1979. And it's a month to remember what struggle means. It's a month to ground oneself in the history of revolutionary work. It's a month to discipline the body and the mind. Um, You know, even fasting is involved, physical exercise, things like that. And the point is to commemorate these different moments when people sacrificed often their lives for this work of liberation. And one of the initiating moments, one of the first things that are are commemorated, historical events, is the storming of the Marin County Courthouse by Jonathan Jackson on August 7th, 1970. So tomorrow would be the anniversary Jonathan Jackson was 17 years old, and his brother George Jackson um, was incarcerated in San Quentin prison, and he was incarcerated for a sentence of one year to life uh, for robbery, and it was, he was a, a field marshal for the Black Panther Party, and so he was intentionally being put in prison Um, for a sentence like that so the state could continue to control him and and cage his body for as long as they needed to. He was incarcerated for 11 years until he was assassinated uh, in 1971. Seven of those years was spent in solitary confinement. Seven years in solitary confinement. The way that he died was construed in a, in a way by the state to you know, make it sound like he had done something to deserve his death. James Baldwin said of the death that 
No black person in America believes that George Jackson died the way the state tells us he did. It's believed that it, he was assassinated. But so his brother, 17-year-old Jonathan Jackson, stormed the Marin County Courthouse, trying to liberate his brother as well as a couple of other friends. He took hostages that he was going to use as a barter to get, you know, to get his comrades out. And the state shot and killed everybody, including the hostages that they'd taken. Now, this isn't an example of, of a great success. It's not something that I'm raising as, as an example we ought to imitate in any way. But there's something in here about the love that Jonathan had for his brother and his comrades. This kind of love that oriented him towards absolute sacrifice and towards death. And when thinking in those terms about love, about sacrifice and death, right, coming from where I come from, it's so hard to not think of Jesus. Of Jesus who turns his face towards Jerusalem. The thesis statement of his ministry to liberate the captive, to set the oppressed free, and going right into the belly of the beast, knowing that he would be killed, but going nonetheless. Jesus says that greater love has no person than this, that they would lay their life down for a friend. I'm preaching at Riverside on next Sunday, and I'm talking about death. I'm talking about how deeply crucial Jesus' call to death is, how he's actually calling us to die over and over and over again, and he can't see a separation between loving and dying. So I want to try to understand what that means for us. What kind of call is that? How can we take that seriously? How can we make that practical in our lives, that call? to die for the liberation of the world. One of my favorite thinkers, Joy James, a political theorist, a black woman who was a bodyguard for Angela Davis. Um, she was at Brown, now I think she's at Mary's College. She's actually going to come lecture here next February. I'm super excited. She came out with a book earlier this year called In Pursuit of Revolutionary Love. And she, she, you know, she says a lot in the book, but there's just this one line that stuck with me in talking. She's talking about Jonathan Jackson. She's talking about Marin County. She's talking about George Jackson. And she says, we remember the attempts to be free. We remember these attempts to be free. They're so deeply ingrained in who we are as people who hold this vision for liberation. We remember them all. We commemorate them during months like August. We try to form ourselves into the kind of people who are so possessed by love, by this vision of liberation that we would also turn our faces towards Jerusalem, towards the cross. And I think there's something in, in that remembrance. I think we, as a progressive church, we talk about you use high moral language of, of liberation, of, of setting people free, of struggle, of justice. 
But what histories are we accessing? What are we denoting? What are we referencing when we talk about this as a project? Is it something that we see ourselves existing in, sort of in in silo? It's just us here today. We suddenly have this vision. Or are we a part of an unbroken chain of people who have sacrificed for this vision that we now hold? A vision that might ask of us also a sacrifice of like kind? Are we open to that possibility? As we are trying to think about the salvation that we are supposed to be carrying to the world, which that is our hubris, right? As Christians, we believe somehow that we understand what salvation means, that we hold it within ourselves as a community and that we are carrying it to the world, that we are building it. But what is that vision? How do we think about that in concrete terms beyond just the language of justice and liberation, of setting the oppressed free? So what what I want to offer this morning is, is this history, this radical history, this Black August history that commemorates people who took that call so seriously, perhaps not in the context, right, of a Christian call, of a, of a theological obligation, but nevertheless shared a vision for the future that was so clear that they gave their lives for it. And as I'm talking about this, about what freedom might look like, about what it might take to get there, I think One of the things it really requires is belief. Is belief that this is actually true, that the Christian story is actually true. That Jesus bringing salvation to the world is something that really happened. Something that we can access, something that we can carry forward into the present. But I wonder sometimes if we really believe it like that. If we think of church as a social club place to come to because it's, people are so kind and loving and caring. We come, have a good time, feel good about ourselves, go on our way. But of course, that's not the call. To have a good time, to be comfortable. Those things happen, and we're such a wonderful community and so full of life and love. But that's just what we do along the way to another place. That's who we are to one another as we work. But we're working towards something. We're working towards a vision that is is actually so difficult to articulate. Right? We have poetry, like the poetry of Isaiah, that gestures towards this world. But how are we imagining it? How are we actualizing it? How are we realizing it in this world? And what I, the main point of today is, is I want you to understand that we don't have to do that alone. We have one another. And we have these histories of people who have been working to create that world. Have literally been laying blueprints out for what that world might look like. But then we feel like we need to reinvent the wheel. We still wonder what that could possibly look like, our horizon of possibility stopping at the threshold of, of electoral politics and, and a, a certain politician's platform. We can do better than that. 
And so what I want to offer today is something practical. I want us to read something together. It's a document that was put out by the Black Liberation Army, the the group that Asada Shakur was a part of in the 70s. It's a 20-page document called A Message to the Black Movement. And we have copies of it back on the security table and on the narthex table out there. And I want you to take it and read it and come back on the 22nd of August to have a conversation about it. Not because I think it's something that ought to be imitated, you know, in some direct or linear way, but because they're talking about these issues of struggle and liberation and of what that might look like and what it might cost in a way that, for me, frames Jesus' call in such a practical and immediate and urgent way. It's been transformative for me to understand what the stakes of this thing are. Because are we doing work in the shadow of the cross? Are we doing work that requires us to be fugitive in the way that Jesus was? Is what we're doing so threatening to the power structures that keep the captive incarcerated, keep the oppressed underfoot? Is what we're doing so threatening to them that death is a threat to us. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, the great Christian theologian in the 20th century who, who died, who was executed in Nazi Germany for his opposition to the regime, who tried to actually to assassinate Adolf Hitler, he said, when Christ bids someone, Christ bids them come and die. And he lived that out. Now, that's not comfortable, right? That's not easy religion. That's not just a place you go to to get a little pick-me-up to get you through the week, which sometimes that's all we can afford. We're just trying to get by. That's, that's all we can manage. But what we're a part of is supposed to be both the end and the beginning of the world. We're supposed to represent the destruction of every oppressive power, the burning up of the world, that's the metaphor that Paul uses, that the, the world up in flames is what the gospel means. But then out of that comes resurrection. Out of that comes new life, where these antagonisms, these exploitations, these antipathies no longer have any power. Where the sea, which represents chaos for the writer of Revelation, becomes glass where there is a tree that grows, the leaves of which are for the healing of the nations. It's a cosmic vision. It's a theological one, but it's a political one. And I want us to think about that. Not that we're going to get anywhere completely brand new today or really anytime soon, but I want us to ground ourselves in this history of struggle to think about what that might mean beyond some of the histories that we might come more immediately to mind. I want us to think about this document. I want to think about what it might mean to take on this work of liberation in a way that might cost something. It might make us deeply afraid, 
but that might make the world even more afraid and might result in real and true liberating justice. So let's think about that together this morning. Amen. Thank you for listening to this week's message. We trust you are fed as well as challenged by the content. This audio archive supplements a video library of the entire service. The video, along with music from our internationally recognized gospel choir, is available on firstchurchbrooklyn.org. We provide multi-access worship options, both in person and online, Sunday morning at 10 a.m. Eastern Time during the summer, from July 4th weekend through Labor Day weekend. We are live in the sanctuary, as well as firstchurchbrooklyn.org and the church Facebook page at facebook.com slash firstchurchbrooklyn. All one word, no spaces. Visit firstchurchbrooklyn.org for more information on both online and in-person worship. Remember that now, as always, you are loved.